Detroit on the line, Jack Berry, who was a sports writer for 50 years, covered for many years for the Detroit News, and probably covered a 100 golf majors. Uh, but Jack, I'm going to let you tell us about that. And welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Well, you're very welcome. It's uh, a very nice day again in Detroit. We've been having a terrific fall. I'm playing golf tomorrow and about the low 60s, I think. Uh, We're having a real bonus this year. Uh, Global warming right now, (laughs) we're thanking it. Uh, I've been been around golf for, well, when I started, when I was at the uh, United Press, which was my first uh, job outside of after I graduated from Michigan State and covered the first Buick Open in 1958 at Warwick Hills. And a matter of fact, that was uh, Arnold Palmer and, and Billy Casper's story there. Uh, on Thursday, uh, it rained after Palmer had shot in the low 60s. And in the, in the old days of the PGA Tour, if uh, – if everybody didn't finish the round that day, why it was washed out. So his round was washed out, and he wound up losing by a shot to Billy Casper, who had not who had not got his round going that day. So that was a, a long time ago, and kind of my first uh, first uh, sight of Arnold. Although he had been around the Detroit area for a, a lot before that, he had won the. Uh, won the U.S. Amateur at the Country Club of Detroit. He became friendly with uh, uh, some of the members at uh, at your club, Grosseal Golf and Country Club. And, yeah, I worked but, there all through high school. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, I know that you saw him there, and he did play in, in uh, the Invitational. The Grosseal Invitational is one of the top top shows in, in golf around here back in those days. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we, we started this call a little bit ago and it kept breaking up. And I said, you know, Jack, let's talk about Arnold. And and my memory is, I said, is my memory clear? Because I remember, I thought I remembered, and I've talked about him in about 1950s at Grosse Hill Golf and Country Club. And you, you uh, confirmed that, that it was the Invitational. And that's when I first became enamored with with uh, Arnold Palmer. But going back a little bit, you know, you worked with UPI and and. Were you covering the Red Wings or something? At what point well, did you well, let, let, let me go back. Let me go back to Arnold for a bit. Okay. Uh, there's a story in Golf Magazine which just came out on uh, Doc Giffen, who used to be he was the golf writer in Pittsburgh, and then Arnold asked him to, uh, you know, to be his uh, to be his Boswell, and and uh, he went he got out of uh, the newspaper business and went to work for Arnold, and uh, was right up with him right up to the end and I sent and there was a nice this nice story on on uh, on him in the uh in the uh, golf magazine and his years with Arnold and I and I said well you know I I uh, understand how he was feeling I had a long summertime of screw ups with uh, with my uh, heart and uh, wound up I was taking too much medication but uh, uh, he said that uh, back Arnold's uh, uh, falling uh, fell down at uh, at Latrobe in uh, 20, December of 2014 and dislocated his shoulder. And uh, he said that it seemed that for Arnold that was the start of the uh, start of the of the downturn for him. So it. Uh, Arnold had a long, wonderful life, but uh, as happens to all of us, as I say, we get, you get wrinkly on the outside as you age, but you also get wrinkly on the inside. And you don't like that. <laughs> you think that you ought to be, you know, I'd be doing what you did 20, 30 years ago. Well, uh, over all those years, you must have spent so much time around Arnold. And, of course, you've got an awful lot of um uh, recognition yourself for all that you've done to the game of golf, just like Arnold, you've been giving back for years. And, and uh, so you first like saw him in the 50s? <laughs> nobody done it like it. Nobody did it like No, but, but weren't you inspired a bit by the way he was? I mean, I've always found myself to have been inspired by him ever since those early days. I've followed him closely and feel 
so blessed to have been able to spend so much time around him when he was here for the senior skins and his partner Ed Say and his wife Winnie and even little Sam Saunders when he was like six, seven years old. But in some ways, was he, I mean, at what point were you starting to cover Arnold in, in, with golf? Well, from uh, 1958, from okay. when I, yeah, the Buick opened and, uh, you know, saw him lose the, lose the, uh, uh, the open at, uh, at Oakmont to, uh, uh, to Jack Nicholas in the playoff and, and how, you know, the crowd was all, all on Nicholas and, uh, all for Arnold and how well Arnold handled everything. The only thing, the one thing, a couple of things that I remember like it was yesterday were in the crowd walking along the fairway was this uh, short kind of very stout guy with a, with an Ohio State uh, cap on, and it was Woody Hayes, the Ohio State football coach. Sure. Both uh, And then yeah. after the after the playoff in in the uh, in the press room there, uh, Arnold was uh, asked a little bit, you know, more about uh, about Jack and one one comment, all the nice comments and everything. He says, but he could play faster. <laughs> and uh, Jack was a notorious. Slow player. Yeah, and, and Arnold played fast. So, well, uh, you know, watching their relationship towards the end of their life, the last twenty years or so, and I saw a lot of that when they play here at the Senior Skins. They, they had a certain bond that you know. I think I loved all the things that happened at the memorial service. You mentioned Doc Griffin. I'm glad you talked about him because he was such a big part of Arnold's career and everything about him and uh i love following that backstory about doc griffin but also uh alistair johnson i thought when he held the press conference when arnold passed away he really he just gave such an overview of the 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 years of kindness that he was able to watch arnold give to everybody all over the world yep that's uh, absolutely uh absolutely right he he was just uh uh, you know they were they were really competitors, real strong. Both wanted to win like crazy, and Jack actually was the better, obviously the better player. But Arnold was just had the, you know, the crowd with him because he was he was he was magic. He was just, uh, you know, everybody loved him, and and, uh, and rightfully rightfully so. But then they be, they became very very close friends and have been as you, as you mentioned for you know, 30 years or more. And uh, it's wonderful that that uh, two people at the very top of their profession can become, you know, can become, uh, you know, such rivals in the profession, but such, such great close friends. Oh, I saw things that were just heartwarming, you know, with Barbara Nicholas and the whole families, both families. But um, I, I think the the whole thing about Arnold, you know, he wasn't really – looked at as the winner, like you said, Jack was the better player, but he was just, you know, such a blue collar representation of someone who just pulls himself up, right? <laughs> and digs down deep and, you know, the flair that he had with everything. But he also did so much for golf. I, I remember following very closely when he, you know, all the players played underneath the PGA of America. And, and when he started the PGA Tour, I think it was a Dean Beeman that was the, the – uh, Commissioner at the time, and I what I do remember is Warren Orlick from Detroit was part of the PGA of America at that time. Right? Well, he was, pres- he was a president of the Yeah, and I remember Warren, I didn't learn all this till years later. Warren was a great mentor to me and supporter, and when I played amateur golf around Michigan, it's only then in the last few years I realized the, the roles, you know, someone like Warren played and all that, but... Arnold got the PGA Tour established separate from the PGA of America so they could be two separate organizations and and run respectively for the kinds of organizations that were. A tour and then the one, what, today there's twenty eight to 30,000 club pros under the PGA of America. So maybe address when he did that, and I think he did it with Arnold Palmer, didn't he, or with uh, Jack it was, uh, with Yes, yeah, the two of them were the big, they were the big ones, and when they decided that they had, you know, they had to make this break, why then that convinced the other players to uh, to join. And during that time when uh, they were kind of uh, fighting apart, there was a uh, tournament uh, over in Windsor and at, at Essex. And 
I don't know whether it was actually the call of Canadian or whatever it was. I think uh, it was the Essex it, Open. I remember that event. Okay. Well, the big players would not play in it. Even um, uh, what's his name when you when you get to my age, you the names slip away. Um, the uh, black pro from from Detroit, broken arm. Great, yeah, uh, uh, Calvin Peake. Calvin Peake wouldn't play yeah. in it, and and he would be you know would have been the best name that they could have had. Yeah. Uh, but the tour players wouldn't uh, you know wouldn't come, and then they had the, then they had another one at Walnut Hills where where they didn't pay the purse. Uh, and that was a a split. There was uh, the uh, you know the what became the PGA Tour guys were playing down in Akron, and they had this uh, tournament. I call it the Michigan Golf Fund Classic uh, here, and uh, they had a very uh, you know a very poor field. And and uh, when it came time to, <laughs> to pass out the check at the end, the guy who was the sponsor and supposed to put up the money had disappeared. <laughs> So uh, at that time, Joe Dye was the commissioner of the uh, PGA Tour, and and that uh, forced the you know the tour said that if you uh, sponsor a tournament, you have to have the money in the bank before you know before a ball is ever put on a tee. So, so it went through its challenges, but but you yes, know what the blessing yeah. that Arnold and Jack were the ones that yeah. you know, and they did they weren't like you said weren't supported by all the other pros initially. And the other thing is just what he's done for TV. I mean, I've always modeled what I've tried to do with uh, my community access TV and stuff. From what I first, when I first saw like Arnold and all of them doing TV, and they would hand the mic to each other. Um, and also, they played their big, first big three of golf, Jack and Arnold and Gary, over here at Mauna Kea that you still see on the Golf Channel, which Arnold Palmer was a part of starting. And but that whole style that they used to have, you know, with the when they started TV. So he started both eras of TV, and of course, he came up in well, that era. Well, it was uh, thanks to Mark McCormick. I mean, that, he was the, you know, the genius of uh, IMG, International Management Group, right. and and uh, Arnold was uh, basically was his uh, first uh, first guy. And he was his he only turned, client initially. He, he turned, I think Arnold he turned, told him, "You have to take care of just me." Initially, he turned Arnold into a millionaire. You know, Arnold been playing for peanuts, uh, basically, and uh, now he. Uh, one story that, that that I just read that he had about a three-year contract with Wilson, and, and as part of the contract was if he wasn't doing good, he'd have to give the clubs back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then Jack uh, joined with and Gary Player with the big three. Right, and Jack when they felt, came over here and played uh, at Mauna Kea. And Jack felt that uh, Arnold was getting, you know, that. Uh, that Arnold was getting all the the prime time and he wasn't getting as much and so he broke off on on his own and obviously has become very successful. Well, what a nice uh, you know uh, what do I want to say passing of the torch to his his son, his grandson Sam Saunders who you know lived in such a public eye as he was growing up. I, I saw him when he was like six seven years old and he came over here with Arnold in the private plane, you know, for the senior skins. I got some pictures of him, you know, around the airport when they would fly in. And and so I followed him closely over the years. He was high school golf, his college golf. And what a young man he's turned into. He's on the PGA Tour, and he really had handled himself with that memorial service with with such just grace and and uh, and and feeling blessed for the life he had with his grandfather, even though they had their difficulties as he was, you know, working on his golf game. Comments on that? that? Yeah. Well, um, uh, Arnold wanted them to play one way, and Sam probably had had some ideas of of us trying to do a few, you know, do a few things the other way. What's well, like, uh, you know, uh, Arnold and his father. You know, his father told him how to. Uh, Told him how to grip the club and don't you ever change. And uh, you know he's he's stuck with what his father, with what his father taught him. Well, I'm looking forward to watching Sam Saunders and you know how he carries this you know forward. He just did a beautiful well, job at the memorial service and uh, really really wonderful to see. Well, don't put too much pressure on him. I mean the guy is you know he's it's been hard. He he is talented, but he's not you know he's never going to be a, a real 
top tour player. But I don't even look at it as how he's going to play on the tour. It's how he handles yeah. the fact that he's had to yeah. carry this legacy for since he was a kid. That's why he moved to Colorado, I think, yeah. to get away from it a little bit. And, right. uh So, I mean, I just I think he's really evolved in a way that he carries it with uh, pride now. And uh, just that's what I'm watching, you know, yeah. the, the, the way that he'll manage that legacy of his grandfather. So, so sports, what a what a great thing! And we maybe take a few moments. I don't think we've talked since the Ryder Cup. Your feelings about the Ryder Cup? There it was on that weekend, the weekend that Arnold was uh, had passed away, and uh, kind of timely for a lot of you know the players to be all together and and celebrate Arnold's life, honor his life, and some comments on the Ryder Cup. Sensational. <laughs> Sensational. It was great. It was uh, it it. Um... They did a great sales job. Back when when I first covered it was one that they played at uh, Belle Reve in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, Arnold and Jack were there, and, you know, all, all, the, all the top players were there. And there was hardly anybody, you know, hardly any spectators there. Was, really? Was, uh, wow. But it was just, uh, there, was, there wasn't television then. There wasn't the, uh, you know, the United States always won. And so it was just, uh, it didn't, uh, you know, cause a lot of uh, a lot of commotion or anything. The way it has, the thing that's made the Ryder Cup what it is, is the United States losing. And, and what about Europe becoming a part of it? When did that happen? Wasn't it Jack Nicklaus? Well, that was because of Nicholas. Yeah. yeah. He, he uh, said that, come on, we got to... Uh, We've got to play all of all of the players, and and uh, not just uh, the Great Britain and, and Ireland. And that's when they got then they got Seve in and and uh, Joe Mary Jose Maria Olafable and all these all the other great uh, players from uh, from Europe got on. And Tony Jacklin uh, became the captain, and he wouldn't stand the the British PGA, which uh, you know did their side of it. Was going on the cheap, and uh, in their, you know, in their, the way they took care of the players, the way they traveled, and, and their, their clothing, their shoes, and everything else. And Tony Jacklin said, "You, you make us or uh, treat us first class, or else we're not playing." And uh, so that changed things and, and uh, ignited the great, the great uh, competition that it is today. Oh, just just absolutely wonder. Of course, I thought the the TV coverage was fantastic, and it was. Uh, we're talking with Jack Barry, longtime friend of mine here, uh, not just on the Emily T. Gale show, but I knew Jack for many years in Detroit. He ran in the Emily Detroit runs, and I think he even wrote a few stories about me over the years. <laughs> yes, and indeed. Off and running, yep. <laughs> you always yep. good to me in that regard. I really appreciate that, but. Uh, so Jack Berry, yeah, 50 years sports writers, covered over 100 majors in golf, president of the the uh, Golf Writers Association of America. But Jack, there's a couple of things I've learned about you recently that I did not know. First of all, I, I knew just because what I've known about how you've advocated for uh, on, on behalf of women's golf in Michigan, you know, with the women's Michigan Public Links and the Metro Detroit Executive Women's Golf, and and you've always been a a great supporter of women and advocated uh, more recognition for women in golf. But uh, the other thing is that I didn't know that back in 1984, you're the one that advocated to get women in the locker room at the Masters. You were president of the Golf Writers Association of Michigan. You got a, I don't know if you had your Lifetime Achievement Award by that time in your own parking space at the Masters. But no, that was a long time. Afterwards. So, so tell me about that. 1984, was that Melanie Hauser, who's now the secretary of the Golf Writers Association, was the, well, the writer was at the time? She was uh, very much so. She and there was another uh, girl from uh, from uh, Houston and um, another uh, uh, gal from uh, who was working at the Free Press at the time. And uh, Horde Harden was the uh, was the head of, of, of the Masters, the chairman. And I wrote a letter to him and said that these, you know. They're professional journalists. They're reporters, and they and they get in the men's locker rooms in the National Football League and in baseball, and uh, you know, in order for them to do their job, why they should be able to go into the uh, into the locker rooms here. And Hort Harden was a good guy. I, I 
I liked him a lot, even though he had the, the funny line in the Masters, and he asked Seve how old he, how how tall he was, in in the presentation there in the Butler cabin after Seve had won. How tall are you, Seve? <laughs> but anyway, he uh, uh, he uh, made the uh, drop the ban on one on women uh, getting into the uh, into the locker room, the men's locker room, and 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 I must say. I have four daughters. I had three sisters. My mother was one of six girls, so I've had a lot of <laughs> I've had a lot of women around me. So I feel I feel that they should be treated just the same as uh, same as men. Well, you always treated me with such regard, both athletically and otherwise. And so maybe that's what it came from, and why we I've remained friends with you because I always felt that respect and uh, kindness from you. So it's interesting to see the the background of your your family history with all the the women in your in your life. And and uh, I'm curious. I'm going to kind of do some research and see who that writer was at the Free Press, 1984. I probably knew that person, but. Um, yeah. But the very neat, and and for so many years, you know, you you have done so much for women's golf. So it's fun to find out a little more history about that. You've been uh, writing for Great Lakes Sports Publication, my good friend Art McCafferty and Carter Sherline and all of you. What a great job that, I mean, way back 30-some years ago started Michigan Golfer. And, and you guys have been, you know, such advocates and, and created so much TV uh, way ahead of everybody. I think Great Lakes Sports Publication was one of the first online golf shows almost he was. Uh, Art, Art uh, was smart. He got on the online train very early, and had, and his wife Jenny is, uh, you know, she's an expert at it, and uh, she had worked at Harvard and um, Boston College or Boston University, some one of those. Anyway, she's a computer genius and online, and uh, yes, Art got into it uh, real soon or real early, and. Uh, He's done like thousands, thousands of uh, videos that have gone on the internet and on uh, YouTube, and I've done a lot of interviews uh, for him. A lot and of nice was, ones. It's great to see you I, on camera. And I've enjoyed it. You know, it's uh, it's a lot of it keeps me active and uh, got around to a lot. We've done quite a bit uh, recently on Meadowbrook uh, Country Club here, where. Uh, Andy Staples, a uh, golf course architect from uh, Scottsdale, uh, redid the whole course. Uh, Meadowbrook was uh, celebrated celebrated its centennial this year, and like so many centennial courses this year, changes have been made, and he's done a remarkable job. They closed the club for a year, and instead of losing members over that time, they gained 50 more members. and uh, he got the uh, the pro uh, Mark Stevens got uh, nine thousand visiting tee times at other clubs for for Meadowbrook members, and so uh, uh, there's going to be a little reciprocation of when Meadowbrook uh, the new course opens next uh, next year. Well, as an amateur golfer, yeah, Chick Harbert was the was a pro at a uh, long time pro at oh really at. Uh, okay. Meadowbrook, and he was one of the tour's long hitters, and he was a PGA champion. Sure. Match play. See, I did not realize that in terms of his PGA uh, reputation, because when I was playing junior golf and women's amateur golf, you know, it was Horton Smith at Detroit Golf Club and and Mike Suchek at Oakland Hills and all those guys that I knew as the PGA pros. It's only that in later years that I've learned what kind of – uh, of history they had on the PGA Tour, and the you know, and in those days, so many of them went to club pro jobs, right? At some of well, the they did. They couldn't have, because there wasn't, you know, the the uh, I've got the the, uh, the eleven uh, Motor City Opens that had you know Ben Hogan won the first one that was at Meadowbrook after after the war. It's like twenty five thousand dollars was the was the total purse. And and uh, you know they can't guys can't live on that right uh, right and they they you know they drove their cars from tournament to tournament and lived you know they bunked together they ate it together and it was very and then the then in 1958 when Buick uh, came in and bumped it to fifty two thousand dollars and wow you know and that killed the Motor City Open because they couldn't they didn't have the the wherewithal to match that. 
match that price. And Buick yeah. at doing 52, that caused the other other tournaments around the country to boost their their uh, prize money too. And and then along comes comes television and bingo, it is what it is today. And you talk about them driving around together. I get I see Dave Marr the third um, every year in January here at the Mitsubishi Electric Championship at Hualalai, and we've created a nice friendship. And he's always telling me stories about how they drove around. Of course, his father played on the PGA Tour with Arnold and Jack and the all-caravan from hotel to hotel. And he tells me stories about how, you know, one parent would stay home with all the kids, and they used the dresser drawers as cribs and, you know, all, yeah. all traveling together and the close friendship they have. And, of course, Dave's father went on to uh, play in a Ryder Cup. And I think he tells the story about how uh, – they didn't. He was Arnold's partner in a Ryder Cup. Dave Marr was, uh, Dave Marr the third's father, and I think that was the Laurel Yeah. And the, the captain came up and said, "Arnold, we want to talk to you about who you're going to play with." And he said, "What do you mean? I'm sitting with my partner right here." And he stuck with <laughs> Dave Marr. Another true story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a nice. That's a nice story. So you talk about Great Lakes Sports Publication. Just to you know, shout out to Art and all of you who for so many years giving me a lot of, lot of support. And I always say it was. Uh, Great Lakes Sports Publication, Michigan Runner, which was uh, started before Michigan Golfer, but they put our Emily Detroit runs on the map. <laughs> Thanks to Art those days. I really appreciate it. But got a chance to see him at Oakland Hills this summer. Sorry you and I missed each other by a couple hours, yep. but uh, what great coverage you did on TV and Art did with uh, the U.S. Amateur where uh, Curtis Luck won at Oakland Hills. Of course, Oakland Hills known for Ryder Cups, uh, Senior Opens. Arnold won, I think, a Senior Open there. So many wonderful events. So did Jack. Yeah. Arnold, was, it was funny. The, the first Senior Open was uh, uh, the South American one at uh, one of the New York courses, and they didn't. nobody was there. And, and the at that time, uh, the senior open you had to be 55 was the the age uh, door to get in, and it, it still is on amateur events for the USGA. But the USGA saw that, hey, we're not going to make any money at uh, if we don't lower the price, uh, the age to 50 the way the PGA was doing it. So the, the second senior open, they dropped it to 50. And uh, Bud Erickson was the tournament director at Oakland Hills, and he said he got a call one day. This woman said, hey, I want tickets to that Arnold Palmer tournament. Well, it was an Arnold Palmer tournament, and uh, although there was a playoff with him and Casper and, and Bob Stone, Arnold won, but the crowds came out. And since then, the you know senior opens have done very well. Uh, Jack won a few years later, beat uh, uh, Chi-Chi, which was, an, you know, another – Another great one. So, Oakland Hills and Michigan the last few years, right? A three, a couple of years out of the last four, anyway. Yep. And, and uh, the uh, uh, Oakland Hills has been uh, uh, the USGA kind of put them on a back burner uh, because Oakland Hills took the Ryder Cup and took PGA Championship, and the USGA was uh, telling Oakland Hills, "Well, we thought you were a USGA club, so." They uh, didn't uh, give Oakland Hills, which has had uh, what, five uh, U.S. Opens and so many other championships, uh, and put them on the back burner, even though they've been had sent letters asking, you know, for another championship. And uh, now they had this great success with the uh, with the amateur in August. And I thought Fox's Fox took a lot of hits for its coverage of the uh, Open last year year ago in Seattle. But they right. did a terrific job at Oakland Hills, and and Brad Faxon and Curtis Strange and Paul Azinger just raved from beginning to end about what a great golf course Oakland Hills is. The greens, everything. It is a marvelous golf course, and it and it had been uh, practically hidden. And so now I think that that uh, that amateur of Awakened people, and the only thing is, the USJ has has scheduled the open. It seems like practically into the middle twenties, and it'll be a long time before they can get a uh, before they can get it open. And US USJ says, well, they're trying to work out something, but I, I don't know what it would be. Well, what a beautiful presentation it was from the moment you pulled your car into the parking lot everywhere. Of course, Oakland Hills, you know, uh, you know, right outside of Detroit, just a 
renowned for hosting wonderful events and doing such a, a beautiful job. Their membership totally gets committed and behind it. It was it was really, really great to be a part of. So let's, uh, if we might, because it's, this involves a lot of your back history, talk about the World Series and the, the Chicago Cubs, and, and let's talk about your history with the Chicago Cubs. Well, my dad was traveling secretary of the Detroit Tigers, and uh, in 1945, uh, a lot of the guys were still in the service, including Hank Greenberg and uh, Virgil Fireball Trucks, and they got out. Hank got out real late in the season. He was my all-time hero anyway, number five. Hank Greenberg hit all those home, hit 58 home, home runs one year, just two behind Babe Ruth. But anyway, in 1945, the last Sunday of the season, the Tigers were playing in St. Louis, St. Louis Browns in those days, and a rainy day and kind of crummy weather, but he hit a home run. They beat the uh, beat the Browns. They got to the World Series against the Cubs. And because of travel restrictions, wartime travel restrictions were still going on then, uh, they didn't go back and forth the way they do now, that uh, now it's uh, two two games at the one city, three at the other, then back two games at the at the initial city. Back then, it was uh, the uh, first three games were played in the one city, and and if uh, need be, four. The next four were played away. So they played three games here, and then they went to Chicago for four games. And in the seventh seventh game, why the Tigers won and. Uh, Beat those Cubs, and I have my dad's World Series ring from from that. And the Cubs, you know, it's been all these years that they never that they never got back. And uh, it was nice to see them this year, and in such a uh, uh, just a real wonderful team that they have. And Joe Madden, who uh, managed the uh, uh, Tampa Bay uh, uh, team. Uh, American League team a couple of years ago, and uh, and Terry Francona with Boston, two really uh, terrific managers, and and uh, they really they they uh, played a chess game back and forth, and it was sensational. I just uh, I don't it's, usually don't watch much much baseball during during the year, but I watched every bit of that. I watched every bit of it, too, and some comments on what you were just commenting about. I was speaking with Jack Berry, longtime sports writer from Detroit and a longtime friend and covered, you know, golf, as we said earlier, 100 majors and, and Lifetime Achievement Award and Michigan Golf Hall of Fame. There's just a lot of accolades, but just a, a wonderfully kind. And, and I love talking to you and getting stories when I was doing my homework this morning a little bit. I saw on the Hank Greenberg that on, in the series on that seventh game, he hit a home run, didn't he? But it said he had two home runs, scored seven, and seven RBIs in, in that series. Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing was in terms of watching the game, it's, I saw this morning that it was uh, game seven had 40 million viewers, the lo- largest viewing uh, uh, watching a game since 1991 and averaged 23.4 million a game or something but like that. But, yeah, it was hard not to watch. I was trying to think of what did I remember the most about the games and I, really, it was the coaches. And so I was yep. reading. I didn't know a lot about Joe Madden because I mostly started watching him when he was with Tampa Bay. And I've I've always I've loved him from that when I really started watching him. But he only played a, a short a stint in in baseball, and then he started with the stayed with the Angels organization for 31 years. He was a minor league coach, moved up, and then became manager of the Angels. So most of his life has been in in, in around organizations and around the players, not as a player. And for Kona, I saw that he was the third base coach in the Tigers in 1996. Yeah, well, they uh, uh, usually the best the best managers were not great players. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Leland, who was here a, lot, a couple years ago with with the Tigers for a long time, Sparky Anderson, uh, you know, they, Joe McCarthy. They weren't they weren't they weren't great players, but they were great uh-huh. managers. And and another thing on this World Series, and I. Congratulate Fox again getting the, the, the strangest uh, combination of, of color guys: Pete Rose, Alex Rodriguez, and Frank Thomas. They I were, thought they were great. <laughs> they were sensational. It was a lot of fun listening to them. 
it really was, and just learned so much, you know. Yeah. I, I kind of felt that way this summer when I listened to Kurt Gibson. I mean, I heard him tell things that, like, wow, I love that. I learned so much listening to those guys. That was really, really great. I loved a lot of the specials they did, like, about Harry Carey and his career as a broadcaster and his yeah. son and grandson getting into it. I love those backstories that when yeah. they get told and get into detail and let, let the, the, the people tell the story. So some comments about that. Cause you, you know, did you watch the Cubs during all those years when they were had their drought? No, no. Well, okay. uh, yes. When, uh, when they were on uh, Turner, when uh, uh, Turner had the Braves and, and the Cubs, WGNs, you know, was always, and, and Harry Carey was on, and that was pretty much the only baseball that was on television. Oh, okay. Turner had everything locked up. The cable television was the Cubs and the Braves, and they were uh, they were America's teams then. In that, I had that forgotten period. that. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to think it's always been on TV, although as many games as we see. Yeah. Yes. So, so I. Um, Jake mentioned I love the fact that they said that the win was for not just the fans and the players, but for every player that had ever played with the Cubs, like Ernie Banks. And and uh, for some reason, I started following a little bit about Ernie Banks. Of course, he passed away a year or so ago, and I maybe that's why I started paying more attention. But um, uh, just some, some comments about some of those, because he played in the Negro League, Ernie Banks, right? Yeah, yeah. He played with the Cubs. Well, that was a little bit before my uh, my time, and we didn't have any any uh, Negro League teams around here, you know, in Detroit at that time. So you wouldn't would have known much about it. Was Satchel Page the same thing? But nice to know that that's part of their back history or back history. Yes, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and know well, that the Cubs, the Cubs, uh, the Cubs uh, for for. Uh, a while, and they weren't uh, selling out every game. You know, they they won a lot of years when there were hardly any people out there in, right. in the stands. And then uh, uh, television did improve it, and uh, and uh, you know, just um, good ballpark, neighborhood. I love Chicago. I have two of my daughters live there, work there, and Chicago is a, is a wonderful city of of neighborhoods. And you don't find that, certainly you don't find that here in Detroit. Uh, you don't find that in, in uh, many big cities. But they all have all these sections all around, and everybody gets together, and they all have the, all the different bars and restaurants and all. It's, it's uh, I think it's the one, as they say, the city that works. Uh, and, and the Cubs are, Cubs are their team, although my one daughter, um, her uh, – the company that she works for, they have tickets to the White Sox games, so she she would go she would go to White Sox games. Um, but, uh, they're they're both Detroit Tiger fans, of course. Yeah. yeah. Have they, have <laughs> all, all your daughters into sports? Have they? Oh yeah. They, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, oh. that one my uh, his, uh, daughter who first went over to Chicago, she went to a Northwestern, and uh, she stayed in at in Chicago. She loves Chicago so much and she lived near the lake and has been there all these years since she graduated from Northwestern. And uh, oh yeah, she got uh, uh, the assistant sports information director at Michigan was getting the job, the head job at Northwestern. And I was covering Michigan football at the time and I says, hey, my daughter, my daughter's a freshman. He says, Tell her to come and see me. She can work for me. She worked sports information all four years. So oh, she's, isn't that great? She's a huge Northwestern fan. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, so, Jack. They're all, yeah, they're all, they're all sports nuts. All, and and some of them, as I recall, one of them was uh, working with our media a little bit or, you know, submitting yes, stories yeah, or she, an editor. Yeah, so they've gone yeah, into media as well. That's my oldest daughter, Anne. Okay. She, uh, yeah, she's, she's, uh, uh, she also won when the uh, PGA magazine was being printed here in Detroit, and I did some writing for them and everything. And, and I think she delighted when uh, she could uh, make some changes in some in whatever I wrote. You <laughs> editor, oh, <laughs> because because when she was in college and she had sent some letters or something or other, and I would kind of 
make corrections. <laughs> <laughs> she, she got back at me in spades. <laughs> so let's talk about Hank Greenberg for a minute. Uh, did you happen to see the, or did you hear the interview? I, I think I might have sent it to you about Chasing Dreams. It's at the Detroit Historical Museum and uh, Gail Greenberg and uh, was it Wendy Breeze? Um, they brought that exhibit with the Michigan Jewish um, Society. Well, no, I, I have the book that was, uh, you know, written about him. What I, I re- he was just so classy. At the back of that time, that the the, uh, the ball players generally were like small town guys, and and uh, you know a lot of them from the south, and they weren't, you know, they weren't really as educated <clears throat> as they seem to be, as they are now. And Hank was different, and of course he because he was Jewish and he's this big guy. Why? He took a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of insults and, and yells and everything against him along the way. And he was, he was, he was so much better than those people who were insulting him. And uh, he um, lived at the uh, the Lee Plaza Hotel on that uh, on the Grand Boulevard. And when he married Carol Gimble, who's you know Gimble department stores in New York. Oh, and really? Were, okay. Yeah. Huh. And uh, he would give my dad, um, for Christmas, a Countess Mira tie. My dad my dad liked ties, and Countess Mira was, you know, that was the number one. And uh, so Hank always gave my dad a tie at Christmas time. And it was, well, uh, he was, uh, they let him, Hank was in the Air Force during, during the war. I mean, he wasn't flying the planes, but he was in the Air Force, and when uh, he got out and came back to the Tigers, and he was a, uh, you know, he was a tall guy, and they traveled in train, you know, all, all the travel was in trains, and he would get, you know, like a, a lower bunk or something, or like the uppers and, and lowers. There was no, um, you know, it wasn't the way that they are treated now, and so he got, he got in his contract that he flew from city to city uh, huh. when he got when get, he got out. Well, the whole he was first class guy. Boy, I, I really, really liked it. Great point. And that's what too. they're trying to, you know, really uh, get out there with the the Chasing Dreams exhibits and how many Jewish heroes there are, and trying to get the young kids to connect with the Jewish history and their heroes. And it's just a wonderful photograph. It's right on the first floor of the Detroit Historical Museum. And I ran into the ladies that were involved bringing it. It's been, I guess, it's gone to several cities, New York, and it's a traveling exhibit, but the, the huge picture of Hank Greenberg, I took a picture of it, i got to send it to you, but I immediately thought of you, and I, I hope you do get down there to see it, because it, it's an audio and video and uh, photography exhibit, and it's really wonderful, but celebrate and brought by the, the Michigan uh, Jewish uh, Society, and with that in mind, you know, to say what a great guy Hank Greenberg was, and other minorities to celebrate yep. that. So it's quite a... And they're giving books. You said you got the book on Hank Greenberg. You know, they talked about that when I, I happened to run into them in the museum. And I had I was going back to see the exhibit for the second time. And one of them said, are you Emily? And I said, yeah. I had my Say Nice Things About Detroit. Yes. Said, oh, we used to run in your runs. And I was going to hook up with Tracy Irwin, who does the exhibits and uh, displays in the, the uh, Detroit Historical Museum. And... She was off at a board meeting at the Dawson Museum or something. So, and there it was. It was very serendipitous. And here were the two ladies that were really instrumental in setting the exhibit up. And so they they talked. I think I'm going to put it as part of our conversation here today because you, I thought of you immediately when I saw the Hank Greenberg picture. One more subject: Jack Barry, my longtime friend, and and uh, we're talking to Jack. He's in Detroit, longtime sports writer out of Detroit, 50 years plus, and, and many accolades in the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame, the GAM Distinguished Award, and, and just an advocate for women in sports in many ways. But, uh, you know, you covered the Red Wings, if I recall, early in your career. And now yeah. right now the, uh, the Illich family, they're reaching almost $2 billion in the expense of building the new arena in Detroit, and conversation looks pretty close. There's so many things I like about Tom Gore, the owner of the Pistons, who's from Detroit area anyway, but now real close to the Pistons moving downtown. But just talk about the Detroit dist- district and uh, and the stage that it's at right now. Well, it's uh, downtown. Downtown is going to have uh, stadiums for uh, for the three major league teams. Uh, 
the, got the Tigers and uh, at the Ford Field for the Lions, uh, Comerica Park for the Tigers, and uh, the moving Joe Louis Arena, which is on the river, which is, really blisters me that they uh, Detroit was so stupid to hide the river. Uh, where Chicago is smart, they don't hide the lake. Uh, but anyway, Joe Louis Arena will. I don't know what they'll do with it, whether they'll just rip it down or what, but the Illiches are building this big new uh, arena uh, right near uh, Comerica Park and, and Ford Field and the Fox Theater and a big, huge entertainment district there. Well, the size of it, I was around it quite a bit this summer, you know, I made three trips back to Detroit and rode bikes around everywhere and just to, just to watch how fast it's going up and how much it's changing the the demographics really of the neighborhood but uh two billion dollars it's reaching is going to be re- residential retail arena pretty pretty amazing project it is uh definitely it is that it's a it's a long long way from uh from the old big brick barn on grand river the olympia which were when i was in high school we used to get there and get standing room seats and run all the way up to the top of the balcony to see the games and um, uh, now they'll they'll be living in in splendor when they get into this new place. <laughs> That's where I saw my first oh, hockey games no. and they they weren't wearing yeah. face masks then, right? And that was oh, Harry Howe and Bobby oh. Orr and guys like that. Oh, their faces were terrible. But uh, Ted Lindsay, God, he was yeah. like, like, oh my God, from a horror movie with all the all the stitches that he had, and the goaltenders, that's the one that really got it. And and, and general managers of teams, when uh, the uh, couple, the uh, Montreal uh, goalie, and uh, he's the one who started it it's a, with with a mask, and general managers like Jack Adams said, well, they can't see the puck at their feet. Uh, yeah, right. Why don't you get out there and put your face in front of those slap shots? <laughs> I'm trying to remember who was the owner of the Red Wings at that time, Olympia. The Norris. Norris. That was Bruce Norris. Norris. Yeah, okay, because I remember I liked him. I remember meeting him at times through my parents. But Well, Jack Berry, it's always fun to uh, talk story with you and talk sports, and uh, maybe one of these days we'll get nine holes in when I get back okay. to Detroit. But I'm sure loving my – my time there and uh, celebrating speaking to the Detroit Historical Museum. They're one of my caretakers of the Say Nice Things About Detroit. They carry the shirts and mugs and everything. And when I, a year or so, when I go in and talk to everybody in the gift shop, because they're pretty excited about selling the, the merchandise. There's a lot of history yep. to it. I would be telling them stories. Now they tell me that everybody that picks up a mug and walks to the counter <laughs> has some, some kind of story about having run in an Emily Detroit run or something like that. So, it's it's fun to have some legacy in that regard, and I can't thank you enough for always being so supportive of what I've been doing. It means well, you've done a great job. Hey, you're, you're number one booster. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. Well, big hug to you. Thank you All so right. much. Well, Jack Berry from no, the Time Sports I, Writer. I know that I'm going to run on these 60-degree days here, and I'll be wishing that I was in Hawaii. Yeah, well, I look forward to your uh, – Text or your emails when the Mitsubishi Electric Championship comes here, and you're, you've got your, uh, your, your comments to me. Right. Just like I the other it. day when I got a text from you, and you said I when the the Cubs game was on, the World Series game was on, and you said I've got my dad's uh, uh, World Series World ring Series on from 1945 right, right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so and, it, I, and it, it's real small compared to that one that LeBron James showed the Cavaliers have. <laughs> it was a diamond. Like a diamond mine on his hand. <laughs> but the, the last line of your text was, "We paid up. My dad was able to pay for our house with that." <laughs> I thought that was Correct. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, 1945. Definitely. Well, I'm going to run right now the talk story that I did back in September at the Detroit Historical Museum regarding the Chasing Dreams, um, the baseball American pastime. And that conversation was with Gail Greenberg from the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit and Wendy Rose Bice from the Jewish Historical Society of Michigan, uh, responsible for bringing in the the exhibit Chasing Dreams and um, working so hard on making this wonderful exhibit that Jack and I talked about. I'm sorry I didn't encourage Jack to go down to an event they had early in the month. But the exhibit does run to the end of this month, and I hope people get down to see it at the Detroit Historical Museum. So here it is, the talk story about the exhibit on the first floor of the Detroit Historical Museum. And 
beautiful downtown Detroit on Woodward Avenue, an opportunity to also go across the street to the Detroit Institute of Arts and all the many wonderful cultural opportunities in that neighborhood of downtown Detroit. So it is the Emily T. Gale Show, ESPNHawaii.com, and what a fortuitous uh, circumstance. I always say uh, the serendipitous, you know, when you run into people that you, it's just perfect. So I'm walking out of the Historical Museum. I was here uh, going through the Humane Society exhibit with uh, someone who's with the Humane Society, Peter Polis, and on my way out, and somebody stopped me and said, are you Emily? <laughs> and so let's just get into that part of it a little bit. So Wendy, in your last name. I'm Wendy Rose Spice, Executive Director of the Jewish Historical Society of Michigan. And, and I'm Gail Greenberg, and I work with PJ Library, which is a Jewish book gift to people in their homes um, that they get to read books at night as a family. Well, why I'm so happy that I ran into to, uh, Wendy and Gail was that there's a new exhibit that's in the in the Detroit Historical Museum, and I came in the other day, and I, went, I came through it, and it's all about um, the, the chasing your dreams and, and the history of baseball, and when I walked around and realized, and I think somebody told me that the Jewish Historical it's, it's, it's Society. society. And so give us some background, but sure. I, I wanted to get in touch with Tracy Irwin, Smith Irwin, who is a director of exhibits, and we're in touch with each right. other, and she's at a board meeting over at the Dawson Museum, and I thought, well, I'll come back and catch up with her, and here you are, and here, you're the one that put up the exhibit. So give us, tell us so about it. So the Jewish Historical Society of Michigan partnered with the Detroit Historical Society to bring this exhibit to Detroit. It was originally curated by the National Museum of American Jewish History. It's actually a traveling exhibit. I think we're about the fifth city to get it. Yeah, I was I was uh, enthralled when I heard that, the yeah. magnitude of where it's reaching. Right. We are very proud that thanks to a tremendous philanthropic community and series of donors, we were able to take the national content that's on these um, large panels and add local content as well as add artifacts to the exhibit. Well, let's step over. What brings to my mind right away is the Hank Greenberg because I, you know, Hank Greenberg, I hear about a lot because Jack Berry, who wrote for the uh, Detroit sports writer for 50 years, his dad was the traveling secretary of the Detroit Tigers in the 40s, <laughs> and um, you know, this was his hero. Right. <laughs> and so that so, is, this big picture of him and, and, and featured here is pretty nice. Anytime you talk baseball history and Jewish history, Hank Greenberg comes up, and he's considered a tremendous hero because. Not only statistically was he one of the greatest ball players in the history of the game, but also culturally he was um, a Jew by identity. And so when he was faced with a decision on whether or not to play a critical game during the World Series or go to our high holiday services, Yom Kippur, he chose to go to services. And that was very meaningful in, at that time in the 1920s when there was tremendous anti-Semitism. And we're here today with the PJ Library, which is um, a local and a national program, because we want kids to be able to connect to stories like Hank Greenberg's and identify with Jewish heroes. And there's a series of young people's books that are available about that subject. And so you're bringing some tours, uh, Gail, through What we're doing is um, there is going to be a day, a Chasing Dreams Day, November 6th. That is the name of the exhibit. That is the name of the exhibit, yes. And we are going to be doing all sorts of activities that highlight the exhibit as well as baseball and being a Jewish superhero. So how can you think about life like Hank Greenberg did? How do you make choices? How do you, um, how do you make the choice to represent yourself as an American, as a Jew, within your culture? And how do you then have that conversation with your friends, your family, um, and the community at large? So it's really going to be a day for us to open up the exploration and hope that we can send people home 
with an opportunity to not only appreciate baseball history, but appreciate the heroes in our community and want to learn more. And that's a scheduled day now? You have a November date of that? 6th. Oh, November 6th. Okay, November 6th. well, good. I'm glad this is timely. So yes. now I'm, you know, I listened to the, um, the audio that mm-hmm. you have, history mm-hmm. here. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, about that. I mean, is that part of the traveling exhibit? Yeah, so the, in a, in a, it's been in New York, right? Is that? So where, where's the, the it originated so the original format of the ex- exhibit originated in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, okay. And I don't offhand know the locations that it's traveled to. Um, I know it preceded us in Phoenix and Milwaukee, okay. at least. So it's been around, and I don't know where it's well, going. The, the Jewish Community Center, you've been such an integral part of Detroit, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I've been out there for events. And so yeah. tell us a little bit about the, the Jewish community and the Jewish Community Center here. And so is that who is involved in bringing this? The, the Jewish Historical Society okay. of Michigan, of Michigan. is, okay. um, we are an independent uh-huh. agency and we work collaboratively with the Jewish Community Center, the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan okay. Detroit, and in cases like this with the Detroit Historical Society, we partnered with the Charles Wright Museum okay. of African American yeah. History to talk about the Chasing Dreams portion for um, other minority communities, including African Americans, okay. Latinos, and European cultures, not Jewish I cultures. I was just in a movie over there the other day. I mean, all of right down here in Midtown area in Detroit, the Detroit Institute of Arts and the, the um, Detroit Historical Museum, and as, as Wendy mentions, the uh, Charles Wright Museum, African American right, right, right. Museum, the Science Center, uh-huh. everything that's that's down here. Yeah. So when I walked in the other day, I mean, I just I couldn't I couldn't stop taking pictures of everything that's set up here because all of them. There's so much history in the baseball, and yeah. I think when I was here, a couple. Well, I've been here for the Ty Cobb, the signing of the the book. I mean, they, they, yeah. everything that they feature. When I walked in and I saw this one, I had read about it too. And of course, right above us is the Tiger Stadium sign yeah. that was Iconic. at the old yeah. Brick Stadium, Navin yeah. Field, right. you know, before right. Brick Stadium. Now the Detroit Tigers play out of the um, Comerica Park. Right. But right. we all grew up. I mean, if you grew up remembering Emily's and the Emily Detroit runs, I think you said you ran in yeah. the yeah. Emily Detroit runs. Yeah. And we all remember Briggs Stadium and yeah. Tiger Stadium or yeah. whatever we yeah. called it. Yeah. So what would you like uh, the audience to know? This is an online show, and I feature Detroit. This particular one will be all about Detroit. What would you like um, our listeners to know about the exhibit, how long it's going to be here at the Detroit Historical Museum, the November 6th date? Yes. Is that so, for everybody to know right. November 6th, mm-hmm. 8th? So the museum is open six days a week, mm-hmm. free admission. Okay. Um, the exhibit will be up through November 27th, Thanksgiving weekend. And um, we have this family day that we're planning Sunday, November 6th. And our vision is to jam-pack full the day with all kinds of fun, kid- and family-friendly events. And we culminate that day at 3.30 with a segment we're very excited about called Old Jews Talking Baseball. Um, They did this in Philadelphia, and it was one of their big hits. But we have some amazing historians in town, and they happen to all be on the um, other side of aging, I guess you could say. Oops. And so they're going to sit as a panel and talk trivia and talk history, and I think they're going to be entertaining and a hoot and informative as well. Isn't that wonderful? I wonder (laughs) if they're going to have that on PBS because PBS has their studios here, don't they? We're actually going to request that they tape it. I don't know whether they would show it. But we'll we'll show it on our website. As it says here, the family that plays together stays together, right? Absolutely. Uh, You know, a parent, a kid, and a game of catch. Oh, I'm getting teary (laughs) just, (laughs) you know, reading it. Baseball represents a set of values and traditions that have nurtured communities and been transmitted across generations. And where more than ever is in Detroit, what a great sports town right. it is. Absolutely. You know, and not not just the baseball, but uh, Red Wings and the Lions. And, I mean, ball players that come here that are like, oh, no, I'm going to Detroit. They end up living here. They love it here. They love the fans. It's a great ta- day to say nice things about Detroit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> great we love it. Detroit. So it's it's a windy Vice. Vice and Gail Greenberg. Greenberg. And, you know, the 
the, the universe works. The fact that I was walking out and I have my shirt on that says, say nice things about Detroit, and you said hello, and then are you, Emily? And I just <laughs> couldn't be happier that you did, because I really wanted honored. to get some, some history about this exhibit, because when I came in the other day, well, I love sports, I love baseball, I love, I love what the Detroit Historical Museum does. Yeah. And every time yeah. I come in, it's something new and, yeah. and different, and that I learn more about something I, I thought I knew something about, you know. But, I, you know, this, Hank, I, this one really hit me when I saw this particular wall about Hank, Hank uh, Greenberg. Um, he says, others, many Detroit fans welcomed Hank Greenberg when he joined the Tigers an everyday player in 1933. Others did not. Greenberg recalled remarks about my being a sheeny? Sheeny. And yeah. a Jew all the time. Now, was that a disparaging, if you were wanted to really disparage somebody in, mm -hmm. in terms of it, that was, that was the word yeah. that pe people use. So a lot that we should know about. Yeah, and there's another really great story that embodies this exhibit, and it's, I don't think it's in the panels that might be on the video, but when Jackie Robinson um, began playing ball, you know, he experienced much of the same yeah. hatred and bigotry that Hank Greenberg did. And um, so there's a story that Jackie Robinson, I believe, slid into base and collided with somebody and almost a fight was going to ensue. And Hank Greenberg came up to Jackie Robinson, opposing teams, and um, figuratively embraced him and gave him encouragement not to give up, to stick it out. I, I've heard that story. A couple yeah. of years ago, a movie came out, uh, 42, which was mm -hmm. about Jackie Robinson. Yep, yep that's right. And um, uh, Harrison Ford played uh, Branch Rickey, and my brother played um, uh, uh, Bert Schotten, oh. the, the, co the, the manager. And so Max and I, my brother Max Gale, and we started doing a whole lot of research together on it. We did a lot of the Emily T. Gale show, ESPNHawaii.com, and, and it just shows and talked about it and just learned things that we were like, wow, how did we not know this? Yeah. You know, you think you know things. So I remember that, that story yeah. very well. And that really is, is part of what this exhibit is about. It's, it's that for minority communities, baseball has been and continues to be a real way for them to connect to American culture and find their way here in this and country. And really, in, in Detroit, that's where the tremendous support has come in baseball is the minority communities. Mm -hmm. And and kind of, I don't know what the word would be, but uh, you know, the Detroit Tigers were one of the last uh, ball clubs to integrate. So, you know, but yep. I think they've made up a whole lot of, a lot of ground. And Ellen Hills-Arang, who's Afro-American, who is the director of marketing, female Afro-American, and she has done such a tremendous job yeah, yeah. at integrating Latinos because yeah. it's all about us. It's Jewish, Latinos, it's Afro-Americans, it's uh, Hispanic. There's, there's Hispanic. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot to that yeah, story. Yeah. So, uh, Gail, if, uh, there are certain books out there that, you know, a certain demographic of, of, of young people or any age that that you would suggest they read or anything? or are well, One of the gifts that we're going to be giving the kids when they come is they're all going to get a baseball-themed book from okay. PJ. Um, and there are a few of them that are out there. There's one talking all about making choices of do I play on Saturday or don't I, just like Hank Greenberg. Okay. Um, there's another one that's all about the life and times of Hank Greenberg. So there, there are a number of Jewish books out there. If they go to PJ Library or PJ Our Way, they can find lists by topic, by theme, and um, they can sign up and get the books sent to their own home. Well, I'm going to get that book and read it. I'm going to call Jack Berry because he's such a historian himself. Oh. Do you remember Jack? He wrote for the, the article, 50, yeah, 50 yeah, years yeah, sports writer yeah, here in Detroit. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I'm, gonna, I'm sure he is very aware of this exhibit. And, uh, Have him come to our old Jews talking baseball day. <laughs> you know what? That's a great idea to get <laughs> you two Jews together. and other old friends. Yeah, we, I, we will do that. We're going to exchange phone numbers and stay in touch. And, again, I'm just uh, really grateful that you stopped and said hello and so took the time we. to, to share this Thank story with you. me. It's the Emily T. Gale Show here on ESPNHawaii.com, and we're in the Detroit Historical Museum in uh, Midtown Detroit where there's uh, just, I just tell everybody, you know, not only are there so many nice things to say about Detroit, but so many nice things to do. And, I, you know, when I go to the hotels and stuff and I ask, where are you busy? Yeah, we're busy. Where are people coming from? They say, everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are really coming to the city because there's so many nice things that are going on. Yeah. Isn't it fun Thanks, to be a Detroiter? Chip.
appreciate people it. People like you. Well, thank you. Thank I, you. I, I, you know, it was all kind of by accident when we did it many years ago, but I'm sure glad that we did. So appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and I, you know, I, I can't say enough nice things about the Detroit Historical Museum. I'm so glad I've gotten reacquainted over the last couple of years, and I'm a member of the Detroit Historical Society, which I encourage everyone to do it. You can get the, the collector level for $50, archivist 75 and historian 150 But the collector level, what a great way to get started. Really immersing yourself for only $50 a year. You get free parking when you go to the Historical Museum. The newsletter is wonderful. And if you aren't a member, stop in at the at the museum and get a newsletter and, and, and read all the things that they have. Also, even collector level, we get tickets to uh, the, the many programs they have that are endless and many free programs as well. Um, got a kick out of something the other day. Karen Dibus and the Historical Museum was promoting an event they had uh, last week. It was um, Karen who wrote a book on better made uh, potato chips and Oh, a gentleman by the name of, what was his name? Oh, Paul Vachon. I have to read that. He wrote one on the uh, restaurants, uh, Remembering Detroit Restaurants. And I just kind of glanced through it, saw so many like the Pontchartrain wine cellars and places that we all used to go to back in the 70s and 80s. And then also Gail Offen, who was, uh, had written a book, Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor. I hope I've got that right. But anyway, they were doing book signings and talks uh, last week. So I made a comment about it, you know, encouraging people to go and, and you know, hoping they had a, a great day. And a little later in the day, there was a post from Gail, the author of the iconic uh, restaurants of Ann Arbor. And she says, Emily, I am staring at your T-shirt and the historical uh, Detroit Historical Museum store and we'll buy one when our iconic Ann Arbor restaurants book signing is done. What a blast from the past. So that was kind of fun to see and I'm just now looking at my newsletter which I've been reading through a lot over the last couple of weeks to see what's going on at Historical Museum to encourage my friends and to attend. Um, just a lot of, lot of great uh, talk stories and exhibits and and fun things. They've got their Noel night that's going to be coming up soon. But I'm looking at this beautiful newsletter and I see a wonderful picture of the Say Nice Things About Detroit t-shirts uh, talking about how they have them in the, in the gift shop at Detroit Historical Museum. So I can't say enough about my gratitude of there being a caretaker and for so many of the people that work at the museum. Bob Burry, who is the executive director and and um, who else? Tracy Irwin, in charge of uh, uh, ex exhibitions and collections. Elise Johnson, director of operations, administration. So many of them have a history with Emily's and the Emily Detroit run. So it's really fun to have that continuity. And then so many of the young people that are learning, because they tell me that people that buy things in the in the gift shop tell them, uh, they tell them stories now about when they used to run in the races. So that's that's a lot of fun to, to see. But they also have a lot of movies that they run at the Detroit Historical Museum. So yeah, tap into their, their calendar and what a, what a great place to go hang out in the chilly weather and just not only that, just the, the things you can learn. But uh, yeah, they got one on Detroit, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. There's a talk. These They call them uh, behind-the-scenes tours, I think. So just on and on and on, um, the wonderful things going on at the Detroit Historical Museum. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Emily T. Gale Show here on ESPNHawaii.com. And, and speaking of, of gratitude, a lot of gratitude to my listeners and supporters of the Emily T. Gale Show here on ESPN. Hawaii.com. You can also get the past shows on iTunes, face, iTunes, um, free podcast, and Facebook at Emily T. Gale or Emily T. Gale Talk Story. Again, thanks for listening. Aloha.